Uh, I'd just invite you to pray with me, hey, and uh, we'll make a start. God, thank you for being so gracious and tender and patient. Thanks for being more patient than us. Thanks for being more faithful than us. Thanks for being more consistent than us. Thanks for being more loving than us. Thanks for being more gracious than us and more merciful than us. Because we need someone better than us to handle us. So uh, we just want to thank you for that. And uh, I desperately need your help today. And all of us need your help. We all need your help to hear you. And uh, we all need your help to, uh, to change in ways that are really healthy and really good. So uh, please help us all today. Amen. So last week I started with uh, going through uh, some details about what shame is about. Today I just want to move on to the next little segment on it, which is really shame's inception and the aftermath of shame. Some people really struggled last week with the message from last week. And some of you really had your poker face on, okay? I came away afterward and I thought, I should have said to you, don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, all right? Because shame's a bit like that, right? You just... It's, it's something, it's out publicly, it's out there in the public and it's, uh, it's something that people don't really want to face up to. And some people probably thought last week it's not that deep and I would encourage you that what Nathan actually shared before about the importance of relation and com- relationship and community is very, very important. Because the thing is, this is one of the things that probably uh, I struggle with a bit or I get a little bit frustrated with is sometimes you bring out some incredibly deep truth and people listen to it intellectually and they think, well, that's not that deep. Or I don't have a problem with that. And you know what they really need is they really need people who love them, who know them well enough to actually help them to see the mechanisms that are going on. And I think part of the problem that we actually have uh, in the busyness of the lives that we lead is that we don't actually stop long enough to be reflective enough to know these mechanisms and how they operate in our lives. And the thing is, I can stand up here and say this to you now, and you can kind of agree with me, but you won't know what I'm talking about until you actually stop long enough and you've got some people who know you well enough to actually help you to work through this stuff. Now, it's painful, all right? That's probably the other thing, is people don't really want to deal with their shame because it actually hurts. And it's possible that there's people who aren't here today because they don't want to face up to it. Some people feel exposed and they feel the need to hide it again quickly. But let me encourage you today that it is painful and it does hurt, but it's good hurt. Amen? It's good hurt. The changes that God's bringing in us, they don't come without a bit of pain, right? Because we tend not to want to let go of things. And God's so gracious and he's so good that he'll wrestle it out of your grip if he needs to because he loves you so much. And there'll, be, there'll probably be a tussle on, all right? And you can fight with him as long as you want. I've fought with God lots of times about things he's wanted to deal with in my life and it's absolutely stupid, right? Because you're never going to win because he's always going to outlast you, all right? So you're better off just to give in at the start. Like, just give in. Just say, you can come in and do whatever you want. It's a little bit like this quote from uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, from Mere Christianity. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and you were not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. Anyone know what Lewis is talking about there? That's, I mean, it's a really interesting thing. I asked someone from the project this week who I met up with, I said, how much are you prepared 
to let God come in and change. And he gave probably the best answer I think anyone could give. He goes, as far as I know, everything. All right? The, the interesting thing is, I think that's probably the best response because even at your lowest point where you, you would say to God, you can do whatever you want, there's still things that are probably fenced off in your life where you don't want God to go. But the interesting thing is God comes in and that's kind of, those are the areas where he's going to make a beeline for. He's going straight for those areas and you kind of go, well, when I said you could do anything, I didn't mean that. <laughs> Here's what Lewis finishes with. He says, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So let me encourage you with this. Don't stop when the pain stops. Just think about that, because I, I think one of the biggest hindrances to people growing and becoming like Jesus and being changed and being saved and redeemed on the inside is that they stop when the pain stops. Because a lot of the time we're really only interested in pain minimization. We're not we're actually not I mean you look there and you go, Oh, it's a palace. But when most of the time, if we're honest, we're not really interested in the palace. We just want to have a happy life. But God's up to something far greater than your happiness. And if you feel like with this shame stuff, you've got it squared away pretty well, let me encourage you, ferret out the rest, all right? Find the rest. Don't say I've, in your heart, don't say I think I've got this pretty well under control. Find all the traces that you can of it and let God get in there and touch it. Be everything that God wants you to be and don't stop short. God's doing something much better than your happiness. So today what we want to look at is uh, the inception of shame, where it all started and the aftermath. And what's really interesting is shame is a reality across our culture and people have to deal with it all over the place. And so what I want to give you to start off today is an alternative narrative, an alternative story about where shame came from, according to an expert. This, uh, this expert was referred to in this article here from uh, news.com.au and that article was on uh, March the 14th this year, so uh, it's less than two weeks ago that this article was there. Now you should know, if you were here last week, you'd see that this is about shame, right? But it's not going to talk about shame in the article, it'll talk about rejection, but rejection is about shame. Here's the title, This is Why Rejection Hurts and How to Cope with It. A really fascinating article. The expert that they refer to is a guy called Guy Winch, he's got a PhD, which makes you smart apparently, which is why I need to get one obviously. Uh, but he probably is a very smart guy. He's probably done a whole bunch of studies and he does a lot of, he's done a lot of work on this issue of um, rejection. And he's written a book called Emotional First Aid, all right, which is kind of about coping strategies for rejection and failure and that kind of stuff. Let me read you a section out of his book. It's up on the screen, but you probably may not be able to see it. Why do rejections hurt so much more than other emotional words? You know, I kind of addressed that a little bit last week, right? You don't need to be able to read it if you're sitting there squinting like you're looking into the sun. <laughs> Just listen. The answer lies in our evolutionary past. Okay, straight up, there you go. He's saying the reason why we experience rejection is because of evolution. So he's just about to tell you an alternative story for where shame comes from. Humans are social animals. Being rejected from our tribe or social group in our pre-civilised past would have meant losing access to food, protection and mating partners. You're not too excited about that. Making it extremely difficult to survive. 
Being ostracised would have been akin to receiving a death sentence because the consequences of ostracism were so extreme our brains developed an early warning system to alert us when we were at risk of being voted off the island by triggering sharp pain whenever we experienced even a hint of social rejection. It's a bit underwhelming, isn't it? Does anyone else feel that way? It's like if you've experienced rejection, if you've experienced deep shame, that's pretty underwhelming because it's more than that, isn't it? It's not that you... Like if I said to you, you feel rejected and you feel shamed because you're scared of not surviving. Well, maybe in the immediate sense it's true. Like when you're in that place, you think, I'm going to die. This is terrible. But you're not thinking about the tribe. I don't think you're really thinking about that. I think shame is actually far more significant than that. Now, he's got a big book on it. Does he say more about shame? I'm sure he does. Okay? But I don't think that's a particularly good starting point for understanding what shame is. So let me tell you what I think is a good starting point to understand shame, shame's inception. Here's the original order. Genesis 1 and 2 record God creating the world and right at the end of Genesis 2, God makes this statement in verse 25. I inserted that first phrase there. At the completion of creation, the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, were both naked and were not ashamed. Just ponder that. Imagine being known without fear and criticism. Imagine walking around in the nude without any concern about your body. No concerns about what you've done. No concerns about anything wrong. No fear of anyone's critical judgment because no one was critical or condescending. No need for self-protection. I mean, just stop there. Imagine that. Imagine living in a place where you didn't need to protect yourself. Imagine being known without feeling exposed. Now, the really cool thing about this is that's where all of history is heading back toward. Imagine, I mean, for us, intrinsically, we just probably feel, we just go, oh man, there would never be a place where it would be okay to kick around naked and and not feel uncomfortable, but they did. They did. But the really disturbing thing is in between this original order and shame is a place where disobedience to God actually happens. And this is what we see in Uh, Genesis chapter 3. So at the start of Genesis chapter 3, the devil shows up. He lies all the time. He's really good at it. So you don't ever want to listen to him or trust him, but we kind of do all the time, or maybe a lot of the time. All the time's overstating it. But the, the devil shows up, tricks Adam and Eve into eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God said, that's the only thing you're not allowed to eat from. And what happens is Adam and Eve take from the tree. Here's Genesis 3, verse 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her lame husband who was standing next to her doing nothing. (laughs) And he ate. Just We're not not even talking about men here, right? But here's the thing, and the ladies know this, right? If a dude's going to do something wrong, he'll probably do it when he's doing nothing. All right, that tends to be the thing. So she gives some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. Now some suggestion has been made 
that Adam and Eve were covered in some kind of glory and their disobedience against God shattered the glory and, uh, and, and showed their nakedness. The Bible doesn't really talk about that. It's possible that that could actually be the case. It's also entirely possible, based on what we know from the Scriptures, that they didn't have any glory covering them, but there was no shame, there was no criticism, and they were just naked. Now check the last bit out here, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now I, I had a bit of a look at some commentators about this, and they say the, the reason probably why they chose fig leaves is because they're one of the biggest leaves on, on plants, all right? And if, if you and I were there, we'd choose a big leaf too, right? <laughs> it's not like a sprig of parsley. You just go, no, don't, don't do parsley, all right? Yeah, but you know what was really interesting? Check out fig leaves. This is an edible fig leaf. Now, the one on the, on the left, I mean, that's, I mean, at least they could have picked one that was full instead of had indentations. I mean, that's, that's almost like a swimsuit or something, bikini or something, isn't it? I don't know, you strap that, anyway, let's not get into that. <laughs> but if you look at the one on the right there, you'll notice the, uh, for this edible fig tree that it actually had, uh, had the information I've got is that it was almost a sandpapery kind of backing to it. You just go, well, that's not going to work, is it? <laughs> oh, that'd make you squirm in your seat, wouldn't it? Now, maybe, maybe they used a different fig. Maybe they used a different fig, who knows? But you know what? It's some kind of attempt to actually hide, isn't it? Because uh, there was something that was actually going on. The really interesting thing is what Adam and Eve did is they did something on a soul kind of spiritual level that had a flow-through effect into the physical. And you've got to believe that human beings are not just physical. Human beings have got a soul and the soul affects the body and the body affects the soul. All right? We're embodied souls. And what's actually happened here is that there was, in a sense, an internal nakedness that came about because of their disobedience, which was expressed in a physical exposure and nakedness on the outside. So we go on to the next bit there where uh, it says in Genesis 3, 8 to 10, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, I could ask, this is a bit of a rhetorical question, but just think for a moment, who are Adam and Eve hiding from? Now, Adam and Eve are actually hiding not just from God, but they're actually hiding from each other too. Do you notice that? Because they could have hid in the bushes naked, right? But they didn't hide together in the bushes naked. They hid in the bushes with fig leaves on themselves to cover themselves up from each other. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, and this is what God does all the time, I think, with people who experience shame, is God calls to you and he invites you to come out of hiding. And the challenge is, will you come out of hiding to God? The Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Do you know, for God, it's almost like um, sometimes uh, in my uh, work as a teacher, you'd go up to some students, there'd be a situation that you'd heard that may have happened in the school and you need to find out some more information about it. And there's that kid that can't help but tell the truth, all right? You know what I'm saying? And you just go, he, he's going to know and I've just got to talk to him and he'll come clean, totally come clean with me about what's going on. And it's like, it's a little bit like this with Adam. Adam kind of, in a sense, has just said, when he says, I was scared and I was ashamed because I was naked, it's almost like the case was closed for God. God didn't need to prove anything else. That was the evidence 
that shame and disobedience kind of teamed up and become a messy, messy thing. I don't know if you remember, but last week I talked about the lady with the flow of blood in Luke chapter 8. And one thing you may not have noticed, which I didn't really point out that much last week, is Jesus asked twice who touched him. And it specifically says after the second time, it says in Luke 8, 47, it says, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden. And this is the thing. This is God all the time is calling people out of hiding. He's saying, where are you? And God would say to some of you today who are in hiding in your shame, he'd say, where are you? You need to come out. And it's this obsession that we have, like Adam and Eve had, of us needing to cover our nakedness, that stops God's work so much of the time. You see, there's a connection biblically between physical nakedness and spiritual nakedness. Physical nakedness symbolises the deepest spiritual nakedness and the shame that desperately needs covering. Now, if I were to ask you, do you think that shame needs covering? I wonder what you'd say. You know what I think? Absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. But the key thing is who gets to do the covering? Who's the right person to do the covering? And I suggest to you today that probably Adam and Eve's story tells you or should tell you, ought to tell you, that it's not our job to do the covering. We don't do a good job at covering. We probably make sandpapery kind of fig leaves to cover ourselves that don't really fit and that really irritate. Then we get to Genesis three eleven to 13. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? Can you see there that God knows straight up if they've got shame, they've done something that he said not to do. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Okay, so what have we got here? Blame, all right? And hiding again, right? The fig leaves aren't enough. The bushes aren't enough. Even though God can see, he made the bushes and he made the leaves. None of that's enough. Now all of a sudden I've got to scramble to grab things to hide behind. And what better way to do it if you're a husband than blame your wife? It never happens, does it? Uh, And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. uh, Some of you heard me say this before, but I think Mark Driscoll says that um, when husbands fail, women get charismatic and blame the devil instead of their husbands, which is, well, anyway, you can be the judge as to whether that's true. Do you notice here, all of a sudden they weren't good enough? And you know what? They weren't. The truth is that they weren't. Adam's fear of being naked is actually self-incriminating. So all of a sudden, look from the other person. They were exposed. This is genuine, deep shame. This is not comparative shame. There's a lot of times that people have comparative shame. If uh, someone has a husband who uh, looks at porn or perhaps even a wife that looks at porn, and the comparative kind of model kind of sets up where the husband or the wife is looking at their partner and making comparisons with other people around the place. This is not comparative because there's nothing else for the person to be compared to, all right? There's no internet. There's no other women. Like, you can't even have... Adam can't even look at any pornography if he wanted to because there's no other women for that to actually happen. But you see, at a core level, there was a, a shame that they felt exposed to each other and they felt exposed to God and you can see here 
why it's so important that people have the security of the marriage covenant before they're naked with each other. One of the things that I've often talked about um, at a teaching level is I've often talked about good nakedness and bad nakedness. There's a kind of nakedness that's good. We talk about this with our sons. We talk about the kind of nakedness that's good. Who's the, who are the right people? Who are the only people that should see you naked? And if you've got kids, you ought to be teaching them stuff like this. Who are the right people to see you naked? And I'm just telling you this morning, it's not the right person to see you naked unless they're either a doctor helping you or the person that you're married to or your parent if you're young. But I'd suggest to you that you get to an, an age, don't you, where it would be wrong for your parents to see you naked, all right? And you've got to get that right because if you get that wrong, you bring shame upon people. And Adam and Eve didn't have shame about being naked because all of a sudden, I don't think it's because all of a sudden their bodies were all of a sudden imperfect. Their bodies were still perfect. Now, not the way that we'd say perfect, all right? It's not like everyone was a supermodel back then. I don't think that's God's idea of a perfect body. But somehow in that, the shame came upon them and upon their perfect bodies um, and they felt exposed and naked, naked. And some of you, the really difficult thing is that some people, if they've been treated poorly and badly by, uh, by people earlier in their life, they can be in a, in a covenant relationship with a man and his wife and one of them can have a real issue with, with nakedness, with each other, in a place where it ought to be good nakedness because they've been, um, I guess, tampered with, they've been damaged in their, earlier, in their earlier life. I read this amazing quote from this guy, uh, Salhammer, who's actually a theologian. I think this is an incredibly perceptive quote. Here's how it goes. The knowledge of good and evil that was to make Adam and Eve like God actually resulted in the knowledge that they were no longer even like each other. I think that is so perceptive. So Adam and Eve's goal was to be like God by eating the fruit, but what actually happened is they weren't like each other and they felt inferior to each other all the time because of the shame that was upon them. They were ashamed of their nakedness and they sewed fig leaves, sewed leaves together to hide their differences from each other. So the aftermath of shame, where are we? Well, we're in a place now where uh, we're concerned about two particular questions. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were concerned about two. They were concerned about what will God think of me and they were concerned about what other people will think of, think of me. But you know, I think in our post-Christian culture, and I think we do live in a post-Christian culture, uh, concern for what God thinks of people has really gone down. And I'd suspect that's probably even the case in the church as well. Ed Welsh makes this very perceptive comment in his book, uh, Shame Interrupted. He says, Now Adam and Eve are fearful of the gaze of others and have amnesia about the fact that their shame is also and primarily before God. He says, As Adam and Eve actually left the Garden of Eden, their concern about what God thought dwindled away and the thing that became prominent in their thinking was what other people thought. And I actually think that's a pretty good description of where our culture sits at the moment. Not many people think or feel acutely the gaze of God and what will God think of me. Most people think more acutely about the gaze of other people. I want to show you a quick clip from uh, uh, SBS Insight. This was on in 2010. It was a, um, 
a show that they did on anxiety. But uh, there's a really interesting uh, comment that this young girl makes in the midst of it, which I think will provide a nice uh, launching pad for the rest of uh, what we're going to look at today. Amanda, I want to talk to you because uh, you loved debating at school, didn't you? Yeah. Did that make you anxious? No, not at all. Um, I've never really been scared of public speaking. It was more social situations where I didn't have control over what people actually thought of me and people's other, other impressions of me. Um, I think that was what really scared me, how other people would actually perceive me and think of what I was like as a person, rather than just, say, as a team member or as somebody who was part of an argument. Mm, who had a role yeah. of some kind. When did that anxiety start for you? Do you remember? Uh, it started in about grade four. Um, so, yeah, it went for several years. Um, How bad did that get for you? It got to the point I couldn't go out in public. You know, social situations became just the scariest thing for me. I couldn't handle any of it. So a real fear of disapproval yes. was, was at the centre of it. Okay. So if I said to you, if I asked you this question, does the Bible talk about social phobia? What would you answer? Now, this is one of the really interesting things. We, we live in a very therapeutic culture where there's lots of diagnoses to get thrown around. And one of the things that, the, um, that Ed Welsh talks about is he talks about in uh, lots of his uh, subjects that he, he delivers as a lecturer, he says you need to normalise the abnormal, Okay. Now, if you break social phobia down into someone who's very, very fearful, as you heard there, of other people's opinions, does the Bible talk about people who are fearful of other people's opinions? All the time. I mean, it's all over the place, through the Bible. And this is the interesting thing. See, the thoughts and opinions of others, I think they were useful prior to sin. I don't think prior to sin people aren't giving each other their thoughts and growing and developing and maturing. I, th I think that was actually happening. But what's actually happened with the inception of, of sin and shame is that people's opinions become particularly toxic, both because of what people say to us, but also because of the way that we receive them. You see, people's opinions of us were never ever meant to be defining, they were only meant to be refining. And what we actually find in our culture now is that people's opinions and the things that they say to us and what we hear they're saying to us in our heads actually become defining statements and they actually shape us. And a large part of it is because we're running away from our shame. And we're trying to get ourselves to a place where other people can't expose us as a fraud. Other people can't expose us as a loser. Other people can't expose us as being unclean. And we're doing what we can to hide ourselves. We hate being, as that uh, lady said there, we hate being in situations where other people's opinions are uncontrolled. And if you actually spend enough time to look at your own life and we're going to do an evaluation in a minute and you'll get the opportunity to evaluate yourself but if you look at yourself enough you'll you'll probably realize that you tend to orchestrate your life quite a lot to try and control and manipulate the opinions of other people some of you did that by the way you got dressed today all right and i'm not saying it to have a go at you i'm just saying that's just kind of how it works right you got dressed you're doing your hair in the mirror and you were thinking uh, will people think well of me? Will someone say that they like my hair, that they like my dress, that they like the fact that I'm not too grey? Will someone say that they like the message today? This, I'll, I'll be honest with you, this is probably the number one issue for me. And it never goes away. And I'd, I'd be absolutely surprised if this is not the number one, well, maybe not the number one, but if this is not a big issue for every single person in this room. 
The only people who probably think that it's not a big issue for them are people who are probably winning at the game. <laughs> All right? The cool ones, the funny ones, the pretty ones, the ones who know that they really struggle with it are the ones that are not winning at the game. We hate talking to new people. Sometimes we hate talking to people. We don't like being open and honest because at some level other people control us and their opinions actually control us. Because you know what they can do? They can expose and humiliate us and they can reject, ridicule and despise us. And we don't want that. And so people write books about it. The... um, common kind of uh, understanding of the anxiety that comes about the fear of other people's opinions, one that's uh, been coined recently, is status anxiety. And I think status anxiety is just shame plus fear of man equals status anxiety. Here's what, don't ask me how I know this, here's what Cleo says (laughs) about status anxiety. According to psychologist Rena Sarkis, status anxiety refers to being preoccupied with the feeling that you're not good enough unless you match up to others. People who experience these feelings tend to compare themselves to others and may feel as though they'll never measure up. And Wikipedia. Status anxiety discusses the desire of people in many modern societies to climb the social ladder and the anxieties that result from a focus on how one is perceived by others. Now, this guy is a very famous guy. He's Howard Stern. He's a uh, shock jock from the stakes. The stakes. The states. And he, um, he has a, uh, a radio show that goes for about four hours a day. In fact, there's radio shows apparently of his that just run 24 hours a day. A guy went in to uh, interview Howard Stern, and I just want to read you a little bit of his interview. Um, when they're having this conversation, the uh, guy interviewing says, you kept looking over at me to see if you were being funny. He goes, Howard Stern says, that was, that was definitely going on, and I caught myself doing it as well. I realised I was watching to see your reaction to things. One person not laughing can make me insane. And there were a couple of times during the news where I thought I was really rolling and I looked over and you were kind of just watching. You weren't laughing or anything. I went, oh, I'm not that funny today. It really messed my head up. Then the interviewer says, there were parts that were really funny. And then Howard Stern says, but it wasn't breaking you up. It was the worst feeling. I said, oh, stop looking over. But I couldn't stop myself. It's a horribly neurotic thing. In fact, I just signed this new contract with Sirius, which is the mob that owns a radio station, uh, but I really was considering leaving. I'm sure on some level I enjoy doing the radio show every day, but the neurotic attention I devote to it and the inability to get rid of that insecurity is very fatiguing for me. Listen to this. This is what he says. The curse is that I take it so seriously... I just can't walk out of here and say, I did a good show today and I'm very satisfied. No, i got to know, do you think I did a good show and are you satisfied? And that's the neurosis and that's the source of all problems for me. Then the interviewer says, that's why you can't connect to people because if they're not talking about you or giving you feedback, you're not interested. And he says this, because my own opinion doesn't matter. And why is that? Of course my opinion should matter, but it doesn't. Your opinion matters, the interviewer says. And because of that, you can pick up on what someone is feeling from cues that other people aren't even aware of. He says, the ability to interview people and read your subject comes from my mother being very demanding of me with one thing, that I should be able to read her mood and know what she wanted. Isn't this interesting? I could look in my mother's eyes and know everything. When she was sad, when she was angry, what she was thinking, I was trained to make my mother happy. And I swear to you, 
when I sit there on the radio, I don't miss a trick because I'll study it. I'll count how many times you blink. You blink a lot, by the way. I'll watch everything. So here's where we are today. I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. And I think we've gone a step further with uh, social networking capabilities now, and we're actually in this zone here. I am who I tell you you should think I am. So we've, we've entered the zone, I think, where not only are we preoccupied with other people's opinions of us, and that coming out of a shame basis or a shame source, but I actually think we're in the, in the zone now where we're marketing ourselves to each other. Arthur Schopenhauer, a uh, German philosopher between 1788 and 1860, wrote this. He said, other people's heads are too wretched a place for true happiness to have its seat. Now that sounds fair enough. Schopenhauer said the way that people actually develop their opinions is so fickle, you shouldn't pay any attention to their opinions, right? Except till you realise he died alone in a flat with a cat, (laughs) all right? And then you realise he went to excess, probably a little bit too much on ignoring other people's opinions. Okay, can you grab a pen? Have you got a pen? I have some holy pens from the project. They've got the project written on them. Hey, bro, can you hand those out? If anyone needs it, stick your hand up if you need a pen. Good on your weeks. And I need two more helpers to uh, hand out. Thanks, Josh and Matt. Are you happy to do that? You need one of these sheets. We're all about the publicly... Fo- no, not publicly, but we're going to find out how much of an issue you've got with this. If you need a... Everyone's going to get a bit of paper. If you need a pen, just stick your hand up. Keep your hands up. Don't, don't grow weary in doing good. This is an all play, folks. So uh, don't sit there and think you're too mature for it. You might be. going anyone else need a pen everyone's good can you do what you need paper all right raise your hand if you haven't got a bit of paper just in the front here man All right, this is simple, right? All you've got to do is answer yes or no. You have to write anything. It was tempting to get you to put your name on it and have a public reading of the answers. But you can't do that in the shame series, can you? 
Then you'll all lie about it. It'll be no the whole way down. Okay. So you can choose whether to put your name on it or not, and then what you're going to do with it, whether you'll destroy it or shred it afterwards. I'm going to give you 12 questions. You've just got to answer yes or no. Ready to go? Number one, have you struggled with peer pressure? What people think, what they say, being accepted by that person, being approved by that group of people. Let me add into this one. Have you changed decisions because of what other people might think about it? You actually think one particular thing, but you kind of change what you're going to do or what you're going to say um, by what other people actually think. That's question number one, yes or no? Question two, are you overcommitted? Are you a people pleaser? Are you someone who says, yes, I'll do that, I'll do that? And you think I'm being holy like Jesus, but Jesus didn't do everything, all right? Sometimes you need to say no. These questions are adapted from uh, some work by Mark Driscoll and Ed Welsh, so I think they're very appropriate. Number three, is self-esteem a critical concern for you? Is it a big deal? Is it it's really important for you to feel good about yourself? Do you tell your kids about it? Feeling good about yourself. That's three. Four. Are embarrassment or shyness common for you? See, embarrassment kind of says, I don't want anybody to make fun of me. I don't want to be the centre of attention. I don't want to get into any trouble. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to retreat. I'm going to sit on the sidelines. I'm going to be shy and I'm going to hide. So I don't get in any visible conflict or any kind of visible kind of trouble. Five. Do you second guess decisions because of what people might think? I referred to this one a little bit before. You say, yeah, I'll do that. But then you think, oh, they're not going to like that. So you change your mind about whether you're going to do it. What are they going to think? What about times, have you ever had any times where you feel like God wanted you to do a particular thing but you were so concerned about other people's opinions you didn't actually go through with it? Maybe you think, oh, I don't think my husband would like that if I did that. I don't think my life would like that. And the bottom line is, it comes down to a lordship issue. Which person is going to have the most control? Number six, do other people often make you angry, depressed, or drive you crazy? That's a nice little rumble there, isn't it? If they do, they might have too central of a place in your life. How are we going? Yes or no? Question seven. Am I going too fast? Okay. Do you avoid people? Maybe someone's just going to be too taxing emotionally for you. You just go, I'm just going to avoid them. I'm going to stay away from people. I'm only going to go to the people that can really contribute to me. What about this one? Do you take too much responsibility for other people? Yes or no? Nine. Are you too committed to being nice, keeping the peace and avoiding conflict? There's a lot of peacemakers out there, right? And usually the peacemakers are going, I don't want to be like those guys that cause trouble. Ten, when you compare yourself to other people, do you feel good about yourself? Er. 
a bit silent there. Eleven. Uh, so you can answer this one. You can agree with that or disagree. Isn't it true that most diets are about impressing other people? Oh, ouch. No, that's right. You can leave now. That's probably not so much about you, but just wanted to throw it there. And here's a beauty for those who follow Jesus. Have you ever been too timid to share your faith in Jesus because others might think you're an idiot? Come on. You only got to do this once, all right? There should be a whole lot of yeses there. All right. Question, question three. You trying to embarrass me, Cole? That's all right. I'm just kidding. Is self-esteem a critical concern for you? Is it a big deal? <laughs> that is interesting. Comment was made down the front here. It's interesting how probably some of us are talking to the person next to us to choose the right answer <laughs> for each of those, which is really quite interesting. Yeah. All right. This, uh, this is probably a little bit small for you, maybe, unless you're sitting closer to the front, but it's an interesting cycle that we get into with fear of man. Shame actually leads to fear of man, and fear of man leads to hiding, which actually leads to unresolved shame because people are not prepared to come out. And that's one of the big problems with, um, that, that any church is going to have is other people in it are going to be prepared to be absolutely brutally honest. What's going to win the day is, is the fear of other people's opinions, if I'm actually brutally honest, going to win the day or am I going to follow Jesus and, and let him kind of deal with my shame? And part of the problem is some of you have probably been in situations where you've been honest and you've been very open and you've been trodden on and you've been mishandled. And you know the interesting thing is about that is that the solution to that is not to shut up and to hide for the rest of your life. You just need to find good people and have good relationships with people, and you need to return to that. I mean, I, I think it's a lie to think, now that I've been hurt by people, I'm not going to be honest with anyone, all right? And I'm actually going to be better for it. It won't be the case. That's not the way that God actually wants it to happen. So let me finish up. What actually happens at the end of Genesis 3, and we read a little bit of it, is that Adam and Eve turn on each other. In an effort to hide, they turn on each other. But when what they really needed was that they needed God's help. They actually needed to turn to God. And I've often wondered, what would it have been like if Adam and Eve just came clean? They came out of hiding and they said, God, we just made a hell of a mess and we just need your help. What would have actually happened in, in the Garden of Eden if they actually did that? What if they actually turned back and they were less concerned about the gaze of each other and less concerned about their nakedness and more concerned about God's gaze? And facing him. See, God's gaze is a lovingly piercing gaze, isn't it? And if you can get, if you can take some time to stop and to reflect on what God's gaze might be like toward you, what will actually happen is the, the gaze of other people will, will, uh, will be reframed and it will change and it will get smaller. Ed Welsh wrote an amazing book on this called uh, When People Are Big and God Is Small. And that's the mechanism that actually happens when people get obsessed with the opinions of others is they get huge and God gets tiny. You see, the first way to be shame-free is to be perfect. All right? The second way to be shame-free 
is to be based on the gracious nature of covenant love. 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says this, it says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. What does God do at the end of Genesis chapter 3? This is what he does. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God's concerned about you being exposed. God's concerned about your nakedness. God's concerned about your uncomfortableness with your physical nakedness because of shame. And what does he do? Who's the first one that kills an animal? It's God. And this is a prefigure of what Christ does when he comes and he dies on the cross, is he comes along and the blood of someone is shed so that people can have their shame covered. There's a quite explicit passage in uh, Ezekiel. And I'm just going to read you a section out of it. It's uh, probably MA 15 plus, to be honest. I mean, you wouldn't read it to a primary school class, that's for sure, and probably not even junior high. This is a section out of it. Ezekiel 16, verse 8. God says, when I passed by you again, he's talking about Israel, and saw you, behold, you are at the age for love. Listen to this, the tenderness of it. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Isn't that beautiful? This is the person that God says in Ezekiel was selling themselves as a prostitute under every tree. They're not... And the thing was, the interesting thing that the scriptures say in Ezekiel is it's a different kind of prostitution because the prostitute's paying for other people to have sex with her. That's what it says in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel 16.8, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And can you hear, listen to this last phrase because this is all about shame. And you became mine. You see, remember last week that shame, a lot of shame is by association. This is the remedy for shame by association, folks. This is what it is. Is that God brings you in, he touches you and he cleans you and you're pure again and you belong to him. We're going to transition to communion in a moment, but I want to finish with this quote from Ed Welsh. He says, the gospel, the good news about the story of God is that God covers his naked enemies, bringing them to the wedding feast and then marrying them rather than crushing them. See, we need a radical reorientation, don't we? We need a radical reorientation away from people toward God. Because every kingdom that you set up has got its own set of rules. And I bet you if I could have 40 minutes with you, we could probably find the rules that your whole life operates by with regard to the opinions of other people. Grace exists in God's kingdom and God says, if you turn back to me and you turn back and you get concerned about my gaze, it's going to reframe the gazes of other people. It's going to make them smaller. It's a tender, piercing gaze. 